On the 28th of June, 1838, 400,000 people packed the streets of London. Preparations for this day had gripped the nation. Now the time had come. Pavements overflowed. Foot soldiers lined the streets. Military bands played. Flags fluttered as far as the eye could see. At 10 o'clock, a 21-gun salute fired. And the new queen, Victoria, departed Buckingham Palace in her grand, gilded state carriage drawn by eight cream-coloured horses. The procession stretched for half a mile. Walks, balconies, windows and the highest roofs alive with spectators shouting loyal greetings. Inside Westminster Abbey, princes and statesmen and high officials waited. Then, the diminutive figure of the monarch walked into the vast, vaulted nave of Britain's Church of State. 8,000 guests rose in homage. As she walked to the altar, in a robe of crimson velvet, trimmed with ermine and bordered with gold lace. Eight daughters of English dukes bore her train. Fifty ladies of the Queen's household followed. As the solemn ceremony began, the Archbishop of Canterbury prepared to place the sovereign's ring on the monarch's finger. A symbol of kingly fidelity, of their marriage to the nation. The ring was sized for Victoria's pinky but the Archbishop tried to force it onto her fourth finger. The Queen spent the rest of the ceremony in severe pain. The Bishop of Durham didn't do much better. He handed over the ceremonial orb at the wrong moment. And to top it all, the Bishop of Bath and Wells accidentally turned over two pages of the Order of Service. Missing out the section pronouncing her Queen. Obliging him to call Victoria back so that he could do it properly. Then the peers came to the altar to pay homage. When the 88-year-old Lord John Roll ascended the steps, he stumbled and fell. And Roll rolled down the steps. Determined to do his duty, he got up and started up the stairs once again. Concerned that the doddering Roll would crumple again, the Queen rose from the throne and went to meet him. After five hours of ceremony, exhausted Victoria headed home in the state coach. Greeted by her dog Dash, she threw off the crown and royal robes, jettisoned the scepter and orb, and went to give her dog a bath. My name is Mark Zakian, and I'm joined by Anthony Robbins, known as Mr Londoner, and in this episode we are looking at coronations. At Westminster Abbey, where every king and queen has been crowned since 1066. From the mystery of the stolen stone in the throne to blind bishops and crushed crowns. From the Queen locked out of the coronation to a secret code predicting the end of the world. We bring you stories of mayhem, mishap, murder, manuscripts and majesty in this podcast. On Christmas Day, 1066, William the Conqueror came to Westminster Abbey to claim the throne of England. After sticking one in the eye to Harold and his Anglo-Saxons, he would be the first king crowned at the newly completed royal church. The event was fraught with tension. William's Norman soldiers were surrounded by Englishmen, all highly suspicious of the French-speaking monarch. As the newly crowned Norman king rose from the throne, nobles and guests cheered. But when the guards outside heard the shouting, they thought it was an assassination attempt and torched the buildings around the abbey. 
As smoke filled the church, the congregation fled and riots broke out. The bishops rushed through the last rites of the investiture to the sounds of looting and chaos outside the church. This Christmas coronation confusion was partly due to the fact that nobody was sure how the event should proceed. William I's coronation was based on an investiture devised by St Dunstan, the English archbishop who crowned King Edgar in 973 at Bath Abbey, and who many historians say was the first king of all England. But a century later, nobody remembered Edgar's investiture. What was needed was an instruction manual. So, in 1382, one was made. Known as the Liber Regalis. This beautiful manuscript is kept at Westminster Abbey. It explains how to crown a monarch. First, the recognition. When the new sovereign is presented to the people. Then, the oath. A promise to their subjects and to God. Followed by a blessing with holy oil. Known as the anointing. The book sets out which hand the orb and scepter go in. The orb is the round ball with the cross on it. A symbol of holding the Christian world in your hand. And the sceptre represents power and authority. Over a thousand years after the first King of England was crowned, these symbols are still used in a coronation today. In medieval England, there was a rush to get a monarch to his coronation. Because if you weren't crowned, you were not recognised as king. Henry VI came to the throne aged eight months old. England's youngest ever monarch. It wasn't practical to crown a baby in medieval nappies. So they waited until he could walk and talk. At age seven, he was invested at Westminster Abbey. Little Henry was obliged to lie prostrate on the altar floor as bishops prayed over him. Stripped to his shirt. Anointed by the archbishop on the chest, head and back with holy oil. Adorned with a scarlet gown edged with ermine. Handed the rod, scepter and swords of state and St Edward's crown placed upon his head. Henry was then dressed as a bishop ready for mass. And if this wasn't enough for a shy, pious and fragile boy, three years later he was taken to France and at Notre Dame in Paris, the entire ceremony was repeated as he was made King of France, the only English king to be crowned in both countries. Little Henry's investiture was made close by the tomb of a murdered medieval monarch probably killed on the orders of Henry VI's grandfather, Henry IV. Henry IV deposed his cousin and childhood playmate, King Richard II, and shut cousin Richard in prison, where he starved to death. Henry took the throne, so when usurper King Henry IV was crowned at Westminster, the ceremony was tainted by his guilty conscience. In 1413, Henry made ready for a pilgrimage of penance to the Holy Land, but took ill while praying in the Abbey, probably suffering a stroke. Carried unconscious to the Jerusalem chamber, recovering enough to inquire where he was, one of his knights replied, The Jerusalem chamber, my liege. And then King Henry spoke his dying words. It hath been prophesied to me many years, I should not die but in Jerusalem, which vainly I supposed the Holy Land. But bear me to that chamber, there I'll lie in that Jerusalem, shall Harry die. Well, that's what your last words sound like if Shakespeare writes them for you. To atone for the murder of Richard, Henry V, son of Henry IV, that's a lot of Henrys, had the body of Richard II moved to an elaborate tomb at Westminster Abbey. 
For the last 600 years, coronations have taken place within a few feet of murdered King Richard. As well as another monarch, likely killed by a usurper. The remains of the boy King Edward V were brought to the Abbey in the 1670s. Probably murdered in the Tower of London in the 1480s. Many people say by his uncle Richard. Others claim the killer was Henry Tudor, the future Henry VII. Either way, Edward ruled just for two months and 17 days. And was killed aged just 12. And Uncle Richard became Richard III. As Shakespeare said, Uneasy lies the head that wears the crown. The tangled web of a thousand years of history is found in every corner of Westminster Abbey with powerful superstitions embedded in the very fabric of the church. The stunning altar floor, where the coronation chair is placed, is known as the Cosmati pavement, created by Italian craftsmen, with thousands of pieces of patterned stone mosaic, during the reign of Henry III in 1268. He was the king who built the oldest sections of the Abbey Church, the part used today for coronations and weddings. The pavement features a strange inscription. In the year of Christ 1212, plus 60 minus 4, the third King Henry, the city and the abbot, put these porphyry stones together. If the reader wisely considers all that is laid down, he will find here the end of the primum mobile. A hedge lives for three years, Add dogs and horses and men, stags and ravens, eagles and enormous whales. Each one following triples the years of the one before. The spherical globe here shows the archetypal macrocosm. Why was the year given in such an unusual fashion? Well, 2012 plus 60 equals 1272. The date of Henry III's death. 60 minus 4 equals 56. The length of his reign. And we know this because a Westminster monk historian wrote about the inscription, telling us that the primum mobile means the world. The years marked by increasing numbers, represented by the length of the lives of plants and animals. So a hedge lives for three years, a dog for nine, a horse for 27, a man for 81, and so on. And the macrocosm is... The great world in which we live. Which the monk says is... A spherical globe, the round stone having in itself the colours of the four elements. Fire, air, water, and earth. So according to the monk... The only medieval witness we have. The universe will end in... 2951. In 928 years. Enough time for a few more coronations. In 1649, Londoners gathered to witness one of the most extraordinary and shocking events in royal history. King Charles I was executed at Whitehall. And for the next 11 years, England had no monarch. The man who led the parliamentary forces against the king, Oliver Cromwell, became England's new ruler, the Lord Protector. Parliament offered Cromwell the throne. If His Highness can be moved to accept the crown, 
but he rejected the detestable rule of kings. For his investiture as protector in 1657, the coronation chair was moved from Westminster Abbey to Westminster Hall, where Cromwell sat dressed in luxuriant robes, but without the regalia. He had ordered that the symbols of the monarchy be destroyed, the orb and scepters to be broken up, all the gemstones removed and sold, and the precious metals used to make coins. A royal bling bargain sale. Meanwhile, the son of executed Charles I, also called Charles, was exiled in Scotland. In 1651, Charles II travelled the short distance to Schoon Palace. And with the honours of Scotland, the Scottish crown jewels, Charles II was crowned. The Scottish lairds paid for the ceremony that featured a banquet of salmon, calves heads and partridges with Bordeaux and Burgundy wine sweetened with 205 pounds of sugar. This was the last time that a British monarch was crowned in Scotland. In 1658, Oliver Cromwell died. The protector was buried without ceremony in the Cromwell family vault at the Abbey. Then a hearse carrying his effigy was taken in an elaborate procession to Westminster for a state funeral service. But with the fall of the Cromwellian rule, Charles II was restored to the throne in 1660. On the new king's orders, Oliver Cromwell's decaying body was removed from his tomb and on the anniversary of the execution of Charles I, Cromwell's three-year dead corpse was decapitated. Three months later, Charles II was crowned King of England at Westminster Abbey. In 1296, a bloody war raged between England and Scotland. English King Edward I marauded north of the border and captured the Stone of Schoon, a rectangular block of pale yellow sandstone known as the Stone of Destiny, the sacred coronation stone of Scottish kings. King Edward brought the stolen stone back to London and commissioned a master carpenter to create a high-backed, gothic chair. When we say chair, it was gilded, painted and inlaid with glass mosaics of foliage, birds and animals. The stone of Schoon was placed at the bottom of the throne. And since then, every king and queen has been crowned on the coronation chair. Except for Mary I, who refused, because she believed her late brother's Protestant posterior had tainted the seat. And maybe Bloody Mary's buttocks would never have actually rested on the true stone of Schoon. Because it's possible that the Scots pulled a switcheroo on King Edward. As a letter to the editor in the Morning Chronicle in 1819 detailed, When servants were carrying away stones from the excavation made at Macbeth's castle here, part of the ground they stood on gave way, discovering a regularly built vault about six feet long and four wide. Among the ruins was a large stone weighing about five hundred pounds. This must have lain here during the ages since Macbeth's reign. From time immemorial, it has been believed that unseen hands brought Jacob's pillow from Bethel and dropped it on the site where the palace of Schoon now stands. A strong belief is also entertained in this country 
that it was only a representation of this Jacob's pillow that Edward sent to Westminster, the sacred stone not having been found by him. Those who have viewed remains agree that Macbeth must have deposited the stone in question at the bottom of his castle, on the hill of Dunsinane, where it has now been found by the workmen. So the Westminster stone in the throne may have been a canny fake. Either way, the throne continued its sacred story. Gilded lions were added in the 16th century, and a wooden seat placed on top of the stone, offering a bit more comfort for royal bottoms. Over time, souvenir hunters chipped off fragments, and during the 18th century, visitors could pay to sit in the chair and occupy a spot graced by sovereign backsides. Many left graffiti on the seat. One carving reads... P. Abbott slept in this chair, 5th to 6th of July, 1800. In 1914, a corner of the chair was destroyed in an explosion, presumed to be the act of militant suffragettes. The Stone's fortunes hit rock bottom in 1950. A few days before Christmas, four students from Glasgow drove to London in two ageing Ford Anglias, taking them 18 hours. They snuck into the abbey in the middle of the night via a back door and prized the stone from under the chair. But the sacred rock slipped, crashing to the floor, where it broke into two pieces. One of the students drove away with the large piece, so heavy that the car springs were sagging. Fearful that the puny Ford Anglia wouldn't make it, he left the stone in a field. The other car dropped off the smaller piece of stone with a friend in the Midlands. And the students all headed back to Scotland. Discovering that the stone was missing, the authorities closed the border between Scotland and England for the first time in 400 years. A fortnight later, the students recovered the pieces and brought them to Glasgow and hired a mason to mend the stone, who fitted a brass rod containing a piece of paper inside the stone. What's written on the paper remains unknown. In April 1951, the police received a message about the location of the Stone of Schoon. It had been placed on the site of the high altar in the ruins of Arbroath Abbey. The police investigated, but there were no prosecutions. Government did not want to provoke any ancient Scottish-English animosity. The indignant MP, Sir Hartley Shawcross, addressing Parliament, said, The clandestine removal of the stone from Westminster Abbey and the manifest disregard for the sanctity of the abbey were vulgar acts of vandalism which have caused great distress and offence both in England and Scotland. I do not think, however, that the public interest requires criminal proceedings to be taken. The stone was back in the throne for the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II in 1953. But in 1996 it went on another 500-mile journey back to Scotland in recognition of its cultural and national importance to the Scottish nation. Today, it is kept in Edinburgh Castle, ready for the next coronation. It's not difficult to imagine what warrior king Edward I would have made of the stone going back to Scotland. The king is buried just behind the nave. On his simple tomb, written in Latin, Martellius Scotius, hammer of the Scots. From his deathly vault, the king will oversee the stone brought back to the abbey for the coronation of King Charles III. The new monarch crowned 
sitting on the Stone of Destiny, on a throne covered in graffiti, atop a stone that has been stolen from Scotland, then stolen from England, repatriated to Scotland, then sent back to the Abbey for a coronation. And for all this, it may not even be the real Stone of Destiny. Between 1714 and 1830, the King was always a George. The first, second, third and then fourth. Known as the Hanoverian Kings. They were all crowned at Westminster Abbey. George I didn't speak any English. And he wasn't that keen on Britain. So his service was performed in Latin, which the German king could follow. Meanwhile, the woman, who should have been crowned as his queen consort, was in prison back in Germany, locked up for 30 years for alleged adultery. Her lover murdered and thrown in the river. The German king's coronation banquet ended with guests running off with the royal family silver. The next day, London newspapers asked for the return of stolen dishes, trencher plates, knives, forks, spoons and salts. When he died in 1727, George was buried in Germany. The only British king not interred in Britain. George I did bring his genius chapelmeister to Britain. George. Everyone's called George. Frederick Handel. More of the great composer in a moment. George II took over from his father. He did speak English. But with a German accent. Composer Handel wrote four new anthems for George II's coronation including the magnificent and imperious Zadok of the Priest. Known as the Coronation Anthem, it's played at every investiture. George was crowned alongside his intelligent and cultured queen, Caroline. Who was a bit of a fashion diva. Her coronation dress so encrusted with jewels that a pulley was devised to lift up the skirt so she could kneel down at set points during the ceremony. When poor Caroline died from a perforated hernia, she was buried at Westminster Abbey. A desolate king commissioned a pair of matching coffins. And when, 23 years later, George II died on the toilet at Kensington Palace, he joined her. The last king to be buried in Westminster Abbey. His grandson, George III, and Queen Charlotte were crowned in the Abbey in September 1761. Married just two weeks before the coronation, never having met before. The procession and ceremony were so long, hungry guests broke out snacks and drinks during the Archbishop's sermon. By 1810, poor George III was blind with cataracts and in chronic pain from rheumatism. Relapsing into bouts of madness he had suffered throughout his life, George was permanently insane and unable to walk. Living in seclusion at Windsor Castle, where he died. George IV's coronation took place at Westminster Abbey in July 1821. His extravagant pageant costing £230,000. That's over £30 million in today's money. George commissioned a new gold crown studded with over 12,000 diamonds. But by the time of his coronation, George was in his 60s. The ageing and obese king sweltered through the ceremony in his thick velvet coronation robes. Matching curled wig and plumed hat. Using up 19 handkerchiefs to mop his heavily perspiring brow. Outside the abbey, the woman who should have been his queen, his estranged wife, Caroline of Brunswick, was desperately trying to get into the church to be crowned as consort. George hated her. He had been obliged to marry Caroline who was short and large, never changed her undergarments and rarely washed. 
he found her body odour overwhelming and ostracised his queen. The government even offered Caroline £50,000 to stay out of the country. She refused. George IV was adamant she would not be crowned. Ordering Abbey guards to bar her entry. The Queen ran from door to door trying to get in, yelling at the guard. I am the Queen, open! When a startled page began to admit her, an official roared, Do your duty! Shut the door! which slammed in her face. Caroline finally accepted defeat and left, the London mob cheering her on. Most of them liked Caroline, and many hated George. Caroline died 19 years later, never crowned. She was buried in Germany, in Brunswick, on her coffin inscribed, Caroline, the injured queen of England. George IV's 50-inch waistline led him to being the most fat-shamed monarch in history, referred to as the Prince of Wales, W-H-A-L-E-S, and inspiring the nursery rhyme, Georgie Porgy, Pudding and Pie. Unsurprisingly, health problems ended his reign in 1830. The new king, William IV, and his Queen Adelaide were crowned in September 1831. The government refused to match the ruinous expense of George IV's lavish coronation, going to the opposite extreme and spending only £30,000, about £3 million in modern money, on a cut price event nicknamed the Half Crown Nation. The king dressed in an admiral's uniform and the queen in a white and gold dress. The royal party arrived at 11am and it was all over by 3pm. Because William disliked ceremony and wanted to dispense with a coronation altogether. But it was a constitutional obligation. So he insisted that there be no pomp and procession. And he removed a litany of symbolic ceremonial dating from the Middle Ages. Such as the coronation banquet and the ritual of the king's champion. The champion's role was to challenge anyone who contested the new monarch's right to the throne. They would ride in full armour into Westminster Hall during the banquet and challenge any pretender to trial by combat. For the coronation of George IV in 1821, the champion challenged contenders with this speech. If any person, of whatever degree soever, high or low, shall deny or gainsay our sovereign Lord George, King of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland, Defender of the Faith, Son and next heir unto our Sovereign Lord, the last King deceased, to be the right heir to the imperial crown of this realm of Great Britain and Ireland. Here is his champion, who saith that he lieth and is a false traitor, being ready in person to combat with him and in this quarrel will adventure his life against him. At that time, the holder of the post of King's Champion was clergyman Reverend John Dimmock. Probably not best suited to a duel to the death. So the honour passed to his son, Henry Dimmock. He was only 20 years old and didn't have a suitable horse, so had to hire one from a circus. But modern champions don't need to locate horse or armour. They just throw down a gauntlet at the throne. The title continues to be passed on through the Dimmock family. The current holder is... 
Lord of the Manor of Scribblesbury. Francis John Fane Marmion Dimmock. King's champion for the coronation of Charles III. When not bearing the king's standard, he's a chartered accountant. Then the trumpets bring, and the organ playing, and the sweet trombones with their silver tones. But Lord Roll was rolling. Twas mighty consoling to think his lordship did not break his bones. This satirical rhyme caught on when Lord Roly-Poly tumbled down the steps at Queen Victoria's crowning. One wag told a foreign guest that the Lord's Roll held their title on condition that they perform the rolling stairs feat at every coronation. The guest returned home and gravely reported the news to his countrymen. Many of the problems at Victoria's coronation were caused by a lack of rehearsal. Compounded by a series of changes to the ceremonial. The old crown, used by George IV and William IV, weighed seven pounds. Way too large for little Victoria's head. So a lighter one was made by the royal jewellers. With a blue velvet cap, silver hoops studded with diamonds, pearls, rubies, sapphires and emeralds. Some 2,166 precious stones with a modern value of six million pounds. It was the prototype for the imperial state crown. The crown used today for coronations and the opening of parliament. But it had to be remade following the state opening of parliament in 1845. The duke was carrying the crown for Queen Victoria when it fell off the cushion and broke. The monarch recalled in her diary, It was crushed and squashed like a pudding that had sat down. And to save the young queen's blushes, the coronation tradition that every lord kissed the new monarch on the left cheek, some 600 of them, was done away with. As was the anointing of the monarch on the breast, removed, introducing Victorian propriety into Victoria's coronation. With Victoria on the throne for 63 years, there was plenty of time to plan for the next investiture. But nobody could prepare for what happened at the coronation of Victoria's son, Edward VII. The ceremony was set for the 26th of June, 1902. Guests were invited from all over the world. But the king suffered from appendicitis just a few days beforehand. And unless he postponed the coronation and had an operation immediately, Edward would die. Six weeks later, the new king finally made it to the abbey. The ageing and almost blind Archbishop of Canterbury had the prayers printed in gigantic letters on cards so he could see them. But he still misread them at the very moment of the crowning and appeared to drop the crown, then placed it on the king's head the wrong way round. Nine years later, King George V and his Queen Mary were crowned at the abbey. This is arguably the first modern coronation where everything went to plan. A new scepter was the centrepiece of the event. The top of the gold rod, the great star of Africa. A 530.2 carat diamond. To this day, the largest clear-cut diamond in the world. The next coronation was born from one of the great royal scandals of the last century. The 12th of May, 1937, was the day that had originally been chosen for the coronation of Edward VIII the oldest son of George V. But Edward never made it to the Abbey. 
obliged to abdicate after falling in love with the twice-divorced American Wallace Simpson. To this day, the monarch is defender of the faith in Britain, and a man whose chosen queen was a divorcee was never going to be crowned at the Royal Anglican Church. Edward abdicated. And his younger brother George, the unprepared spare who loathed public speaking due to a speech impediment, was crowned with his wife, Queen Elizabeth. Staff on duty started work at four in the morning, with guests beginning to arrive at 6am. The peers, knowing they were in for a long day, arrived carrying sandwiches in their coronets. Slight mishaps did occur during the service. The ancient Dean of Westminster maintained the tradition begun by Lord Roll when he fell down the altar steps while carrying the St Edward's crown. Elderly peers in attendance fell asleep in their seats as the service went on and on. And in coronation tradition, the St Edward's crown was put on the king's head the wrong way round. One bishop stepped on the king's train and another put his thumb over the words of the oath when the king was about to read them. George's daughter, Princess Elizabeth, watched on from the royal gallery. And when George VI died, she was crowned in 1953. The first ceremony to be televised live from the inside of the abbey. Elizabeth II rehearsed and rehearsed. Like an athlete preparing for a race, with 8,000 guests inside the Abbey and 20 million people watching on TV, bringing the ancient ceremony to the modern world of telecommunications. But there was one tradition that was not observed. The hereditary Grand Falconer has the right to attend with a falcon on his arm. The 12th Duke of Albans was so put out when officials suggested he come with a stuffed bird that the Duke boycotted the ceremony. The 70-year reign of Elizabeth II means that the gap between coronations has been longer than ever. The story of the coronation of King Charles III will be told through social media, on Twitter, Facebook and TikTok. A story for the internet age based on a ceremony created over a thousand years ago. This Extraordinary Stories of Britain podcast was written and produced by Mark Zakian and narrated with Anthony Robbins, known as Mr. Londoner, with additional voices by Tony Lewis. Zadok the Priest by Handel is performed by St. Matthew Concert Choir, licensed through Creative Commons 3. For lots more history stories, visit our website www.storiesofbritain.com. Please subscribe to the podcast and follow us on Facebook.